everyone. Welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Jessica Benninger. Jess is a writer-director known for thoughtful female-driven comedies like Bring It On and Stick It, which she also directed. So we get a lot of questions from our listeners about using archetypes with our characters to our advantage when writing, but still make them complicated and compelling, which Jess's work is known for. So we'll be discussing that in addition to Jess's amazing career. First and foremost, welcome to the show, Jess. I'm thrilled to have you here. Oh my God. So nice to be here, you guys. Thanks for having me. I was lucky enough to meet Jess and see her in action when we both mentored at the Meryl Streep Writing Lab and uh, had long conversations on a bus, which I'm sure we talked about archetypes, but I've always been so um, um, drawn to how you think about story, uh, Jess. So I'm thrilled to share that with our audience. But before we get into it, we're going to talk about adventures in screenwriting or what we did this week. So we'll let Lauren go first. Lauren, how was your week? Uh, I have no idea how my week was, but today, this morning, which is far back as I can process right now, I was uh, driving home after dropping my daughter off at school and I was listening to uh, Sirius XM, it's my version of the radio, and a song came on and it's a song I love and I started singing really loud and I turned it up and I was like dancing um, and it just made me feel so good. And I remember I got home and I parked and then I felt sad, like, oh, I wish I could be in my car more. And then I thought, but wait a minute. I can do that anytime I want. So I made an appointment with myself that at 10 a.m. this morning, I was going to pick a song I love and play it and dance and sing around. And I did. And that was You Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester. And I just felt so excited looking forward to that date with myself. And then I did it. And now I feel like, oh, wow. I'm so overwhelmed with everything. I feel like there's not enough hours in every day to get my life done, but I can take three or four minutes to just fucking dance or sing or do whatever it is just to capture a moment of joy. Like it doesn't mean anything. I'm not productive. I'm not doing well, it. Joy is always productive. Joy. Is I mean, in terms of my very American processing, like I was productive today. I, you know, I checked all these boxes. I did tasks, but it was it's productive for me. And that, like, oh, I, this is something I can do that's in my control, and I just felt really empowered by it. Um, and so I might do it more than once a day, you know. And I, I don't know. I just felt really. But the making the appointment part was really important for me. Like, I'm going to make an appointment to do this, so I get to look forward to it, and then I accomplish the task. So in a way, it is productive, but I just have so few moments where I feel like I get to create joy. I feel like I'm so reactive in my life. And so for me, that was really critical, especially as I'm thinking about how to write characters who have agency and are active. Like I have to make those choices in my own life, even about very tiny, small things. So that's not my week, but that was my day so far. So I'm feeling good today, which as our listeners know, is not always the case in adventures and screenwriting, but today <laughs> I'm feeling optimistic and positive. <laughs> so that was my, I was just going to say, I remember I was, I had a particularly hard time at Pixar once and I just put on a song and danced around and the song was, uh, had the line in it, give me more. Cause I was so sure I couldn't do it anymore that I, I couldn't handle it. That I just said to the universe, okay, fuck it. Give me some more. You want to go? Let's go. Bring it, it on. Give me more. Give me more. Give, it's I'm, animal. I, I it's animal. Um, 
Uh, more, give me more. Oh, the neon trees. Yeah, yeah, neon yeah. trees. Oh, oh, I want some more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good and one. And I just danced around screaming that at the top of my lungs. My husband thought I was nuts, but it really helped shift my brain over to I can't do this. I can't do this. Too hard to. Yeah, ready. I got, clearly I use rage to motivate myself, <laughs> but I it was good. So I I totally know what you're talking about. It's a really good thing. Have you ever danced around, Jess? Yeah, and I think I have danced it out as one of the instructions in the Bring It On book. Um. Uh, yeah, dancing it out is a great way to reset. It's great. Now we know from polyvagal theory and the brain, it's actually a great way to reset your brain and get that bilateral movement going to get the corpus callosum firing. And you're like, boom. But And I, I did the same today. I danced to, uh, I woke up, I wanted to hear Oh Caroline by the 1975. And then I listened to some Supremes. I love, um, there is a Supreme song called Reflections that some people may know from the opening of China Beach way back when, if you're a Gen Xer. Oh, and, wow, um, China Beach. It just, oh, there's just something in that song that hits, scratches my brain the right way. And it gets me feeling like emotional and tapped in. And then YouTube gave me a beautiful algorithmic journey of Supreme songs with montages. And um, being from Chicago, Motown figured very large in my childhood. And that music just... Um, Supremes specifically because Diana Ross was such an outlier and so talk about agency and autonomy like as a young you know she just was so seemed so in her who she was so anyway that's what I did this morning I listened to some Supremes and I got ready for this chat maybe it was you through the universe inspiring <laughs> me since this is already something you do it's a practice of yours so maybe that was that was what it is. And then I got excited too. I already have a song booked for tomorrow, which is I Want to Break Free by Queen, which is one of my all-time favorite songs. It's my I want song, always. So, but I, I think it was you sending me the collective all those science yes. the collective those unconscious brain yes. words you said. Carl Jung said it, and we're talking we're talking about archetypes. That's, That's right. Collective before, unconscious so. is Jungian. So that is a great bridge over. Uh, to talk about, I remember when we were at the lab, you recommended I get the archetype cards. Oh, you have Carolyn Mace's deck. Oh, wow. Yeah, from you, because you told me to uh, to get them. What do you and think? I have, I have used them. I don't use them probably in the depth that you do, which I actually, <laughs> I want to be able to use them more for my writing because I use them more like when I'm stuck, right? Like mm. I, I was doing an ensemble film with my husband. We were writing it and you know, when you're ensemble, there's so many characters and you have to make sure they're distinct. And so we just started using the archetype cards and laying out like uh, preacher with a uh, gambler. Suddenly you're like, oh, that's an interesting character who has both of those qualities. He is a preacher, but he's also a gambler. Yeah. So it just started to help spark who these people were. Well, that's cool. But I'm so much more. I'm also interested, though, to learn uh, how do you how do you use them? Yeah. Kind of what are they for? What I mean, I think we should start if you're comfortable talking about yeah. this, like what are archetypes? Let's just so, like, what are great they? Question. Um, I think of them as universal conceptual real estate. So like in kids programming, right, it's really easy. You have, you know, the villain, you know, you have the very broad use of archetypes. So the damsel in distress, the villain. So but what they are. And so the great thing about archetypes is they work in the micro and the macro, and they work on a spectrum as well, from broad to nuanced. And I like to think of them, if we're moving kind of beyond 
are, you know, universal conceptual real estate. I think of them as frames inside bigger patterns or frames with patterns in them that we can all recognize very quickly. And I studied with Carolyn Mace, which is why I recommended that deck. I um, did a couple classes with her. The book is called Sacred Contracts, if people want to read the book. She also has a free quiz online, which I can give you the link to that. But you can take a quiz to see what your archetypes are. And sometimes applying it to yourself is the best way to understand archetypes. But Carolyn said this mind-blowing thing to me, which is that we all have four survival archetypes. And they are the child the victim, the prostitute, and the saboteur. And if you think about it, those are all lines you have inside yourself where you decompensate or compensate, right? So if you're feeling helpless, you can revert to the child. If you're feeling confronted about um, what you will and won't do, you might be confronted with your prostitute. Like, where do you sell out? Where will you do something that's a little edgier because you want something so badly. Um, the saboteur, we've all who hasn't like gotten into road rage and maybe you're sabotaging a nice ride with somebody in your car because you freak out. Um, I loved yeah, in her book because I reread it real quick just for this show. And I love that she said, um, look at the places for, in terms of these four where you're negoti negotiating away your integrity for survival. Yes. Your, your survival instinct now has started to negotiate away your integrity. That yeah. Was amazing. And if you think of a, a journey for a character in a, in a project or a process, right, they are often confronted with um, those kinds of challenges. So it's a really interesting way, especially when you're starting and you may not have the nuance, like for me with Stick It. And so, so Carolyn wrote this book and she has a glossary that's excellent. It's free. It's online. And it was written by a gentleman named Jim Curtin, who's no longer with us. But Jim was the manager to John Travolta early on. And so he had this Hollywood backstory and I was working on Stick It and I knew she was the rebel, but I felt like I was too much in the negative. I didn't have a positive outcome for her. And the important thing to remember about archetypes is they have a polarity. They have a negative and a positive. And you want to make sure you're leaning into that polarity to activate the character. But I said to him, like, I'm kind of stuck. I don't know where to go. And he said, um, you know, the rebel, when it's in the dark side or the shadow, leans into criminal behavior. But when healed, it becomes the renegade, which is like good trouble for the greater good. So that really helped me honestly map out her journey because then I had somewhere to, for her to go instead of just like BMX biking, you know, for fun and like getting off on the criminality of it. She was able to kind of reform her sport and get everybody to stand up for one another and for what was right. So that's a long way of saying, yes, I use archetypes and um, I found them to be an invaluable tool. And when you're starting out, I'd say when you're starting using them, like you did with on your project, Meg, it's great to think of a character and go, I'm not quite sure, you know, they're kind of hippie-ish, they're kind of, and you can just play with different cards or different archetypes or different thoughts about what that character is and refine it as you go. Um, but yeah, it's a really good tool. So I'm so curious though about the application, like the practical of it. So I have a character sure. in my head that I've talked on the show about. She's a woman. She lives in a yurt. She's this hippie woman, but in the yurt are all these modern appliances that she keeps secret. And I keep trying to put her into projects or write about her and I, I can't get her out of the yurt. 
right? I, I, I don't quite have know what, why she's hiding it. So say I have this character and I really think she has a story and I really want to dig into it, but I don't quite know where to start. And I have this deck of cards. What would I do? Sure. Well, there's another deck I want to um, talk about, which is Kim Cran's Archetypes deck, which is more modern, a little more modern than Carolyn Mace's. And that's the one I use currently. But, um, you know, people, places, and things can be archetypes. So even her yurt, you know, if you're thinking about it, like, is the yurt a sacred temple of transformation for her or is it an escape? Like even how are you thinking? So how you're thinking about the yurt is archetypal. What it is ultimately in your story will be archetypal, right? And then who she is in that archetypal place will change as well. So is she a shapeshifter? Is she presenting different faces to people? Is she, um, you know, let's see, a martyr? presenting, you know, presenting as sacrificing for the greater good, but actually, you know, maybe not, maybe feeling more victimized by it. And because she feels victimized, she has, this, she has the appliance, the nice appliances. There's a lot of interesting ways you could think about it. And I would just play. I would just take a deck and, oh, here, grab the book. Here's the, the guidebook. This is Kim Kranz. She's incredible. And she has two decks, the Wild Unknown Alchemy Guidebook and the Wild Unknown Archetypes Guidebook. And they're both super helpful. Um, I love yeah, this. You just kind of look around and play and then see what starts to land or what you keep coming back to. But yeah, like, even just read, I'm just going to, can I read you the list of archetypes here? And yes. The yeah. mother, the father, the starborn, the eternal child, the orphan, the mentor, the poet, the maiden, the hunter, the warrior, the queen, the king, the crone, the judge, the shapeshifter, the shaman, the lover, the siren. You know, there are all these things that are known knowns for us as audience members and that will help you because you're leaning into our conceptual real estate when you go there. Um, is she a mystic? Is she a creator? Is she a destroyer? Sounds Even like a the, fun, a yes, fun journey. Even the questions you asked at the beginning really helped me like, oh, I could try that on. Not quite it. Oh, that I'm going to lean into that. So I think that's really fun. Um, yeah, I, I like playing. I want to play. <laughs> yeah, I like to hang them up on the clothesline and kind of see what keeps coming back. Um, I, I mean, for, for Stick It, I knew I wanted them to kind of be like the Wizard of Oz. And I wanted each character to have an essential need. And so I kind of defined them by, I used the presence of the absence, which was is helpful. Like what's absent in the character? What do they need by the end of the story? That's a fun way to get to archetypes sometime. Um, but I knew, you know, so that helped me. So even if you don't see that in the movie, it's baked in for me creating it and it's in the DNA of it. Sometimes it doesn't show, you know, sometimes it's just for us, right? It's like somebody called it bay leaf, like using bay leaf, like you put the bay leaf in the stew and you remove it at the end, but it's that, you know, it's there. I like the shadow side and how the shadow side and the light side of the arc of one archetype gave you actually an arc for your character, right? It gave you the journey of where she needed to go, um, which I think is so great. Um, yeah, because those frames inside patterns or patterns inside frames, however you want to put it, give you a map. They give you a roadmap to play with. And even um, if you decide to move off that map, that's okay too. It just gives you a place to start, right? Just especially in early drafts when you're even trying to figure out, like you are, Lorian, 
this this thing keeps coming to you, right? It is something that is clearly uh, speaking to you in an unconscious way to try to pull it up into your consciousness. It's using the archetypes to tune into it, right? And it makes me think that shadow self makes me think of Javi's um, operational theme that you know, when you have a TV character and a TV show and your main character, what is their operational theme? Meaning how do they operate and why are they always in their own way, right? So if you're if your main character is a rebel in a TV show, they're probably going to have both of those sides warring inside of them, right? Um, or even would you ever take another card and put, like I did with Preacher Gambler to create that kind of, um, you know, disparateness that we have in, sure. in ourselves? No, that's a great idea. And I think also because Gambler and Preacher seem so antithetical, it's two great tastes that taste great together. But in a way, you know, the, the it, and the Preacher, because they're proselytizing, often and being having to be positive, maybe depending on what kind of um, preacher they are, they would have a shadow side that could be compulsive or addictive. So it's a great pairing. And how do you, can you talk a little bit more about patterns? Because you said patterns and framing. What what do you mean patterns just to make sure we're clear? Okay. So first think about generating, we can think about generational archetypes, right? So like boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z. Haven't we all heard kind of stereotypical behaviors of all those generations, right? So generations can have archetypes that there are also personal, cultural, and historical. So an archetype, like there could be a very personal story of a Gen Xer who was a latchkey kid who was basically raised feral and then grew up to be very angry right, in the culture where there was gender bias. And like, so then you could pull in, what are the cultural archetypes? Well, we grew up with kind of faux feminism, the Anjali commercials, right? And then having to experience, oh no, the gender bias is still very much at work. Oh fuck, you know, and then you're angry about it. And then you become the angry feminist, which is kind of an archetypal. So it's interesting how these things these patterns flow in and out of each other. So I'm almost, they're almost invisible at times, but they're there. That didn't really answer your question about the pattern, but I would say like a pattern of behavior um, versus with, so you need the content and the context. So I think of these things, not just in the content of the movie, but what's the context of the culture and how do those patterns work with each other to kind of figure out the the new storytelling opportunity or the storytelling obstacle, that can be really helpful. Now, are you talking about the culture that you're creating within your world or the culture you're living in as a writer? I am talking about both because I don't think you can really, you know, yes, certain genre, even genre is a framework and an art, like horror is an archetypal pattern playing out in genre. Rom-com is an archetypal pattern playing out in genre. Um, some, many can remove context when they're writing. I can't. I'm always thinking about audience and thinking about, you know, I think about screenwriting as an act of hyper-contextualization. So I'm, I can never give that up. That's part of my hyperfixation when I'm writing and part of my neurodivergence, to be honest. Like I, it has to feel like I'm thinking about both things. For me, that doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Jeff, were you raising your hand? No, that, it's oh, funny. I do have a question, <laughs> actually, but that was funny timing. I was actually just kind of 
I guess stretching my arm. I was very, it's because my brain is firing with such excitement about the idea that screenwriting is a process of hyper contextualization. Yes. I feel like that something, can you explain that? That's just like such a brilliant articulation. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I've thought about it quite a bit. So I'll try to unpack my noodling, my years of noodling in a, in a concise way. But so if a screenplay is a recipe for something else, right? I'm writing in a form of haiku to get you feel to feel very specific things. I'm trying to get the audience to feel very specific things at very specific moments in time. Those are like articles of manipulation, let's be honest. I'm really using all my tools to manipulate the audience. In order to be a successful manipulator, you have to be hyper-contextualizing. You have to be framing and pushing, including some variables and excluding others. And that is a form of hyper-contextualization. Did that, is, am I staying in my own lingo and not really answering No, it? no, I get it. I got it. I That's got really it. Smart. You're like, we're, we're neurospicy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my neurodivergence might be different than yours. So hyper-contextualization. So you're taking the macro and you're making it focused like a knife, right? You're, you're taking the small stabbies we all experience out in the world and you're making it one very unique and specific stab that we all recognize and can feel. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, um, that's an, a really cool way to say it. I would say, um, for example, if I'm looking at gender bias in the world and I want young women to feel empowered, right? The story of the movie has to be a proxy for something else, right? So the story of stick and the story of bring it on is a proxy for socioeconomic inequality. And how could you pot, how can you navigate that? So how I think of hypercontextualization is how can I put medicine in the candy that gives you something to take away? And then as you're experiencing the culture, use it or have an awareness, right? That then you're like, oh, I'm not crazy. This is really happening. So um, it's, it's reflecting the real world in this micro way, but also is it a call to action in a way for your audience? For me, yeah, I hope so. That in success, that's my hope is to have some medicine in the candy because, you know, the one of the issues I have with uh, patriarchal storytelling versus matriarchal. And I think of, you know, I talk about this in the final episode of Mob Queens. Um, patriarchal is win-lose. Generally, matriarchal is win-win and the heroine or the protagonist is ahead of the audience. Um, so... In the hero's journey, the masculine version, there's always a villain who's externalized. And I really feel that most tyranny comes from within, <laughs> that our own inner villain is the biggest thing we're battling with. And so archetypes really help you to to think about that. Like what, it, where is the shortcoming of the character or the operational theme as Meg called it? Like, what is their downfall? And then what do they need to do to overcome their own downfall? Or what do they need to learn? How do they need to grow to go from being toxic to possibly being generative? or whole-making, fragmented to whole. So I'm thinking of those landscapes internally as well as in the world. And that's ideal. Look, that's a that's Jedi level. So <laughs> um, not to compliment myself, but to say this is 20 plus years of thinking about this very deeply. Please compliment yourself. No, no. I mean, I mean, and I'm still learning. So yeah. I want to go back to patriarchal stories versus matriarchal stories. Because yeah. um, I... Because I love what you said, win-win. I think I definitely end up writing that a lot. I think 
I think I can say Pixar is often win-win. I don't, at least Pete Doctor, working with Pete Doctor. I mean, Inside Out is win-win. Yeah, it's not, you're never kind of, even when you try to write a villain, they it will be, they'll keep poking at it. Like, well, well what does that really need? And what's the hurt there? And what's the wound? And why would they do that? And what what's their story? And why is it right from their point of view? And like, blah, blah, you know, so it's very um, empathetic experience in terms of any kind of villain. Um so I feel that, but the one place that what you said that I, my brain is kind of like, hmm, um, I find if the character's ahead of me, it becomes an intellectual experience versus an emotional one because I'm not with them in down in the journey. And I work very hard in my writing to put you down in the journey with the character. So I'm interested in what is the hook for the audience if the character is ahead of the audience? How does, well, how does that work? She, meaning the character isn't broken. I mean, meaning they, they just maybe need to heal, but they're kind of, um, I mean, that's a great isolation of it. I'm trying to think like the characters ahead of the audience, meaning she's, she's in it for the highest good and greatest joy, maybe of herself and the audience. Like, um, is she being demonized or villainized? Is she being criticized for something she may not need to be criticized for? That's what I mean. I don't mean that specifically, um, like, even so you don't mean specifically or- like plot wise that she's ahead of us. You're talking about she's more evolved than us yes. potentially. Okay. So that's yes. a big difference. That's where yes. my misunderstanding and that's my, yes. uh, my bad. You're not talking about plot storytelling. You're talking about the evolution of consciousness and that her consciousness is ahead of us. Yes. Goddess, whatever we want to say. Um, so that we, there's a little catch up we have to do with her, which I think, by the way, there's tons of movie stars that that's why we love them because they feel more evolved than us. Sure. Or we Um, think she's wrong. You know what I mean? We think she's wrong in the beginning and then we realize, oh my God, she's right. She was right. She's not changing dramatically. She's still who she is, but we've just come to appreciate that by the end of the journey. This is so So funny. Yesterday, Meg and I were talking about, uh, how we often feel like Cassandra. Mm. the fire is coming you know and no one believes her and then the fire happens and she's totally forgotten that she said that so it sounds like that's what you're talking about and most women is a great recognize this pattern right we always feel cassandra like no no no. i've seen this before i've been here could you just listen to me and then often our voices are disregarded or made small and then we are made to feel crazy or stupid for having this reaction when it's right so it's, that's what you're talking about, right? That we, yeah. Okay. I can relate to that. <laughs> Obviously. That's a great example. That's a great example. And what's great about it too, is it's, it's got all the psychological beats of what happens around when somebody is that way. You know, it's a great proxy for what we're talking about uh, in terms of matriarchal storytelling. For sure. I often write about fire too. You'll be surprised to know. So <laughs> Well, you're working something out. It's great. No, listen, self-awareness is the best tool we have as storytellers, right? And that doesn't, that never ends. And so if you know fire is a a powerful element for you and also an archetypal element, by the way, it's foundational. Cool. It's interesting because I think I have to write one of these characters now because I feel such a resistance to it in terms of myself. So there's some sort of archetypical psychological thing. It feels super dangerous. It feels super dangerous to say she's right and everybody else is wrong, which is clearly my childhood, whatever. Um, Like I sometimes break it up when I'm trying to talk to people about characters because I don't think all characters are transformative. Joy in Inside Out, is it's, it's a super huge transformation. She and and there's a lot of work that specifically has to go in to take the audience on that journey with her. 
But like sadness is to me a claiming character. Sadness is right. She just doesn't believe it herself because she's believing what everybody else is telling her, specifically Joy. But she has to claim her power in the end. She has to stand up and say, no, I'm right. And I will do the climactic action. Um, so I, which is slightly different than what you're saying. So if in the in what you're talking about, the matriarchal character, is she aware that she's right or does she doubt? Where is her crack? Where is her flaw? Of Where is her need? Doubt. No, yeah. of course she doubts. Of course, we all doubt. And doubt is, in a, I think, unless you are um, like, you know, a narcissistic evangelical or something where certainty is your Achilles, right? That would be a different character than somebody who's in the struggle and it just so happens at the end, they are right. That's different. And they get the satisfaction and the self-esteem of going like, oh, wow, I was right. It's a different character arc, but that's the matriarchal arc is a full circle arc. It's not a, it's not a straight line, which is, I think when I look at the hero's journey books, they put it in a circle. And I was like, that's actually not true. <laughs> not entirely true. Um, is there a book that you've read that you like about the matriarchal arc that we could just in case people want to get more information Gosh, about? It? I, I, if I remember something, we can link it. Um, okay. Or you could. You know, I would it. say listen. To, I, I, yeah, I would say listen to episode twelve of Mob Queens. By the way, I'm very proud of it. And um, for those who haven't heard it, Mob Queens is um, a podcast about the life and times of Anna Genovese, who was the bisexual wife of Vito Genovese. And who not single-handedly, but was a very important force in the launch of drag clubs and gay nightlife in New York City. Um, and she was very influential. And Mob Queens is about her life and times um, plus plus. It's the most irresistible pitch I've ever heard. <laughs> if, you're, <laughs> if you're not salivating. Oh yeah. my God, you're very kind. Thank you. For those of you who don't know, The Godfather. Archetypal real estate, the mob, archetypal real estate. Did you know that the person who was the source for Mario Puzo was, drumroll please, a woman? So that's an example of how the culture has appropriated something I made a lot of assumptions about it. And in the end, what we found out after many years of research and, you know, 12 episodes, actually Mario Puzo's source was the wife of Vito Genovese. Wow. In terms of historical or generational archetypes, there's a book called The Fourth Turning um, by William Strauss and Neil Howe. And it talks about these cycles of history. And that can be helpful. Some people who think maybe more broadly, that might be a helpful bit of training wheels to think about this. Um, he talks about high awakening, unraveling and crisis, and that there are these generational archetypes similar to boomers, X, millennial Z. But um, I think that could be a good resource for people. So I have a question about that. You know, you, you named these uh, archetypes about her that I totally connect to queen, mogul, witch, but then there's a person under that, just like our characters are under those archetypes. So how do you not get bogged down with the definition of the queen is oh, yeah. blah, 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 and then not feel constrained to stick to that, but like dig into the character specificity that we have to have to create an actual, real complicated, compelling character. 
That's a great question. I guess I think about it as opportunities. So I think about like, where is her polarity? So where is the negative and positive charge? Because right, nature abhors a vacuum and you always need characters that are dead or flat are often lacking. You've become too one-sided in your description. You're too homogenous. It's like all good or all one thing. You've kind of lost the charge. And generally, you know, what's the opposite of nice? Think of it in an emotional spectrum. What's the opposite of nice? Mean. What's the, you know, we all know that person who's really super happy and I'm being really happy. And you know, they have repressed rage the size of Texas um, frequently because they've repressed all what's right. more, you know, I recognize myself in that and I resent it. How dare you? <laughs> Women can relate, right? Because we're expected to be performative and we pay this very high tax when we're not nice, by the way, um, or if you're direct. I can't tell you the amount of times I've left meetings and been told, oh, you know, she's tough. And it's like, how is direct tough? But for women, you know, because of the mother archetype, because of some other long-standing archetypes we all have inherited culturally it women are expected to be a certain kind of way right and when we're not um it can be very disappointing for the people who are expecting us to be otherwise and we can pay a quiet tax or an overt tax about missing that aspect but you i use it like i use it to pull out i don't use it to get bogged down in i use it when i'm kind of like wait where does she need to go or what is what's missing here i don't i don't like i'm not slavish to it i'm like it's not prescriptive. It's another tool in the toolbox, which is we yeah. say all the time that anything we say on the show, it's a tool to dig in there. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to follow it. It, it does. It does really help because I'm sure there's people listening or thinking archetypes. That's going to get you a cliche stereotype. And uh, once you well, use the cards, making... you, you really get the much more than that. Oh, it's much more nuanced. I mean, for for children's television, right? It needs to be broad. It needs to be cartoony because they are their little. They can't handle that yet. But as you get older, you know, the witch. There's a very sophisticated version of the witch that could be like look at Game of Thrones or you know look at shows that have used the witch, where it's a very sophisticated, nuanced version of that with sexuality and seduction and right. It's um. Yeah, to me, it's to pull you out of being predictable, not to keep you in it. It's a way out. So it's a way to zoom way, way up, and then which allows you to pull down in the specificity. God, if our audience could see my arm movements, they'd be dazzled right now. <laughs> um, I'm just trying, you know, yeah, like Mike said, it's a tool, and I'm just trying to figure out how to use it practically without feeling like it's prescriptive or like being chained to it. It's more of like a zoom out, inspiration, play, see all the places your mind can go and then make choices about the truth. Of yeah, your or what's missing? Like what's what missing? Where is it flat or where are you not? Maybe where's the character having a react? It's really a what if it's a, it's a place of possibility. So if your character is repressing something, we'll use that nice example. Let's say the character, you know, beef does this kind of, well, I think Ali Wong's performance is fantastic showing what happens when you have to be nice and on time and doing everything. And so, you know, beloved, and she's losing her shit. Um, she's paying a huge tax for having to be nice all the time, right? It's her rage is coming out, her anger, her frustration is coming out. So think of it in terms of a seesaw, you know, and you don't want it to be up all in one direction. You want to have this, this movement and this kinetic, um, presence in the character where they are they are in it 
it's not static. It's moving. I Is love that. that. Too cerebral? No, no, I love that. It's very clear. Oh, I, get that. I, I also like think very visual metaphor. Sorry. I'm like trying to figure, you know, stabby seesaw. I'm very articulate about this stuff, but that's how it makes sense in my brain. So thank you for that. <laughs> I also think that what you're talking about in archetypes and how to use them is the the patterns that you're talking about. What what pattern is your character in at the, when we meet them? They're already in pattern, right? They they've already established a survival pattern based on one of those four archetypes, and they're using it to survive. Um, what's the archetype they like to show people versus what's really going on? That seesaw. What do what are they not even aware of that they're living out? Right. Um, I think there's a lot in there. And one thing um, Caroline said in her little book that went with the cards is, you know, in terms of looking at these four survival archetypes, she said, what are you giving authority to? Totally. Is it fear? Who is your God? What, what is your God? What is, what, what archetype are you giving authority to? So for me that you could ask that of your character, right? Where do they feel safe? How do they survive? What are they, what, 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 what did they give their authority to? Who do they like to be? Who do they wish they were versus who they are? There's all kinds of questions you can start using cards for. But I also think to get to lava, which we talk about on this show, which that kind of burning vulnerability inside yourself is you can use the cards on yourself, right? And that you can literally just lay out the four survival ones and then some more and see, okay, what just even today, what, what am I drawn to? And getting, it can be a good exercise if you find in trying to get to your lava that you keep pulling away from it and you don't want to do it. Somehow for me, looking at an archetype card, it's a little easier to kind of admit, well, if I'm really honest, I kind of am a gambler. I kind of, in the best way, but that shadow part of the gambler, I kind of, like it's an easier way to think about yourself without it being so fiery because it's just an archetype it's not judgment. These exist. So in terms of getting to your lava, if you're finding that the notes you're getting are, oh, it's good. The craft is good. I just, I don't care so much or I'm not, I don't, I'm not remembering it or all those kinds of notes you get that really is about this thematic or the lava underneath. You're not making it personal enough. I think go to archetype cards and look at your archetypes for yourself. Just take baby steps into the lava that way. Can I ask you something? What is yeah. it about the gambler that you, the shadow part of the gambler that you find most scary? Oh, I just pulled that out. I don't even think I'm a gambler. I was just no, like, no, no. but it the, was just our, uh, the shadow part of a gambler. What, cause I have a thought about it. What do you think is most scary about the shadow part of a gambler? I would have to go pull the card because I don't remember. Okay. I pulled I know, you know, there's no right out. answer. I would say yeah. the addictive part is what scares me. That right. A gambler could gamble the house away. Gamble, yes. lose the farm. Loss. It's their loss. Addiction, yeah. Their their addiction is so much higher. That part of the brain is running the show versus the logical, more grounded part. And could un- unintentionally be giving authority to the gambler and to that addiction, right? That that's really what your God is, even though on the outside that character or you might be performing. All, it, it's just trying to get real about it for yourself, about yourself, so that you can then do that with your characters. Just as another tool that sometimes people ask us how to get to the lava, you can use archetype cards to get there um, and be really honest about it. And you don't have to be honest to anybody else but yourself. Like, no, there's no quiz. There's no public quiz on your lava. Another frame that I like to overlay that I find helpful, um, and I was just listening to a guy, a former CIA agent, talk about this as well. And, um, and I was like, oh, I, we do that as screenwriters, is to think about the layers of being. So there's the public, your public facing self, your private self, and then your secret self. 
And those are ge generally three different selves. Unless that's amazing. And having worked with an actress for 10 years, I will tell you, that's what actors want. They want to constantly be playing two things at least in every scene that they understand the, the lines are here, but what the subtext is this and what I'm not telling anybody, even myself is this, and it's creating behavior. It's creating choice. It's creating motive that they, and they don't want it to be overly comp complicated. It's not like you're going to hand them archetype cards, but they, it is a very much part of the thinking of building a character um, you know, and I've said this before that Jody would build characters from shame and fear, right? She'd go to those deeper questions of that secret self because the brain is then building around that. Um, and often that's what's coming out in the second act, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think I think the cards are another, that's just another great way, another great tool. So say it again, public, private, Public secret. self, the private self, the secret self. I'm going to do that today with my characters. I suddenly want to write, you guys. I haven't wanted to write in so long. And suddenly I'm like, <laughs> well, I can do that. That sounds like fun. And I'm thinking, is my secret self my lava, which is why it's so hard to get there, because I have to acknowledge that it's there, right? I have this, when you said that, I had this immediate wall. Like, no, Me private, and, private and public, there's a secret <laughs> self. But then there is this secret self where I feel like I'm keeping secrets for myself in a way. And that when I can write into it, or when I get super ragey is where I can tap into it. Or when I cry really hard and I'm trying to figure out what is it about, but it's, it's secret even from me. And I think that's, what's so hard yes. is finding f touching on that, which is why it's so hot. And then being able to trust our characters to travel along their story with our lava. It's because how terrifying. liberating for other people, but that's what art is. You have to go through that fiery catharsis of that archetype or of that personal thing so that we can experience it and have a catharsis with you. That's why you're, we are the front people out into that. That's why it's art. Um, and it's, why it's I hard think for, and why it's hard. And I think for sure archetype hearts could help you bring up what is the secret that you're not even telling yourself. Um, but that's why I always say when you're writing and suddenly you're like, Oh my God, I'm going to throw up. You better keep writing because it's coming here. It's we're right on top of it. You want to be in a therapeutic relationship with the character and asking it about its secrets and be the safe place for it to disclose. You know, you want to be a safe listener to your, if you can't be a safe witness and li listener to your character, guess what? You're not going to be able to do it in life either. So I find like just becoming empathetic and compassionate and non-judgmental there's a guy named Joe Hudson who says the view method, vulnerability, impartiality, empathy, and wonder. And if you just take that position with your character and just ask it questions, ask like, what is the scariest thing that you don't want to tell me? What have you done that I don't know about? Like what, ask it where it has gone and see what comes from that dialogue. And it might also help you get out of, you know, not to dissociate from the, which is yes. different, but just to detach enough to have permission because without permission and without curiosity, we get nowhere. You're just kind of regurgitating. So I say go on a very sacred like permission journey with your characters and invoke some curiosity and really a let it tell you. Yeah. And it will tell you if it really, if you are truly hearted and let it tell you is such a great thing. Can you say those four things again? Because I'm, I, I think they're so important and I want people to. Yeah. Really hear and this it. is a great resource, by the way, I just did it. Um, it's called the, it, the art of accomplishment is the podcast. And Joe Hudson is a coach. He's a very like intense 
corporate coach, but this is a call from the class. Uh, it's called the communication course and it's called the view method. And it stands for vulnerability, impartiality, empathy, and wonder. And it's a great six weeks, twice a week for three weeks. And you learn these tools and it's amazing how much agenda we all have when we're talking and how little we actually listen. And I consider myself a pretty good listener, but because I have hyperfixation and writing all the time, I, you know, it's pretty active in here. So the challenge of really stopping, listening, asking questions is a great, it's great for everybody, but it was really helpful for me. I highly recommend it. What an incredible four things to do with your, your with yeah. your character, just as a writing exercise. Just do the writing exercise. Yeah, I think that's so great. I love putting it that way. When I work with uh, my, my workshops with students, I try to create an atmosphere where you're building trust with your with your character. Your character has to trust you to tell their story, not the story, not the agenda, not the story you want to tell them. I try not to think about it as creating a character, but letting the character come to you and then trusting trusting me, trust me, I'm going to tell your story, which is all about curiosity, impartiality, being vulnerable to the experience. They might get mad at you, you know, all of that. It, uh, that really, I really like that. I didn't know that that's what I was kind of doing in a way, but that really speaks to me. Um, because that's, I have to see it that way. This is a real life person that showed up for me to tell their story. But if I start putting like the, I want to talk about blah, then I, it's, then it just comes all yucky and falls apart. Well, you don't want to be virtue signaling through your character, right? It's like, it's just this weird performative thing then rather than an authentic grappling. And people really want the stinky cheese. You know, I, I've often said in terms of the larger, you know, when I'm criticizing the industrial development complex, which I do quite frequently, especially after a drink as Meg knows, um, I, you know, there are so many unpaid and underpaid labor markets that just stifle creativity in Hollywood. It's like you go in and they want the pasteurized dairy. They want the craft single in its sleeve instantly. And it's like, actually, the shows that do really well are very stinky cheese that come from a singular point of view. Breaking Bad, you know, Vince Gilligan, thinking about that, having it memorized, being off book getting rejected from one, you know, from one home and going to another home in terms of the show's arc, like he really was so committed to that stinky cheese, an unlikable protagonist. Imagine that, an unlikable lead. It kind of revolutionized, but it re was very revolutionary. Um, Game of Thrones, filled with unlikable people who you can't stop watching. That's very, that's the stinky cheese. You know, incest, Imagine that in a pitch room. It's never going to go, right? It's like, it's a non-starter. Um, and then you end up actually caring about these characters who've done horrible things, right? That Those shows to me are great examples of the power of archetypes and using them to invert, subvert, like um, take point of view and really commit to point of view. Like there is no flinching in either of those shows from the ugly stuff. And what? Both wildly successful. Can you um, talk about Game of Thrones? And not you... super developed, P.S. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I've been in the experience where I've, it's been developed right out of the show. And then you're like, Lorian and I had a show once. I was like, oh, Lord, please don't green like this show. I don't even yeah. know what it is anymore. It is. Yeah. It, it, they, it's been developed right out. What um what um uh Game of Thrones, just to give our audience examples can you pull an archetype from Game of Thrones and how it was used to subvert or, or you know, that it wasn't used 
in a flat way. It was it was used in a kind of that. Well, I think Daenerys, I think, you know, Mother of Dragons starts off, right? I mean, I think her journey was very complicated. Um, she seems very heroic and motherly and maternal, right? There's this all this heroism and then that power by the end turns and she has to be vanquished by her love. I mean, um, I think that character, Circe also like, Circe is so complicated. She is so unlikable. And at the same time, she is a mother. Like it's so rich, right? Because it's got these things that don't go together, stitched together beautifully. And you can't see the stitching. It's just like the actor is embodying all this complexity. Um, that's how I think. Of are it. there any archetypes that you think are overused or? Oh, yeah. Girl next door in the movies, girl next door. I mean, like, oh, I'm so likable and clumsy. That's my feature. Like me. I'm just misunderstood. What is it? Sex sexy, but doesn't know it. Ugh. I, how many times has that been written? In, 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 in descriptive, you know, in one like, way yeah, or another. It's lazy. You're pandering to your reader. We all do it occasionally because, again, screenplays are articles of emotional manipulation. So we all pander to the reader, um, to the success of that pandering <laughs> is what makes a good or bad movie. But yeah, stuff is overused, absolutely. Screenwriters are wildly guilty of this and they've often been trained into it by two layers, the agency industrial complex layer and then the development industrial complex or industrial development complex layer. Because you're now performing for somebody, you know, you're rather than really thinking about the audience and really thinking about the production, you're performing it in order to pass go. And that's problematic. And it makes for it makes for really shitty outcomes. I mean, it, I, I honestly, I know it's a reality of the business. I wish it weren't. Um, I struggle. And also there's an asymmetry of information and power with this that, that doesn't work as an economy and that's a, maybe a whole other discussion but uh hollywood is not an efficient market um i think and i could be completely naive that um the only magic bullet bullet and it's not always magic and it doesn't always work but is lava is that personal stinky cheese that you're putting in because they can't be quantified. It can't be repeated. It can't be AI'd. It can't, it, it, it will be the thing that even though you're maybe a direct female and they don't want to deal with you, they have to, because it's so good. It's so, uh, delivers as a story. I do think those things can rise above the industrial complex because I have to believe there's people inside that industrial complex who love art, who love storytelling, who love movies. I agree that there's people in there who do not um, and are there for different reasons. Um, but I have I have found my people in Hollywood and I've been very uh, consciously gathering them, right? The people who do love movies, who do love the art, who do and why they're here, why they're working hard. I had a friend who's a producer and I was like, dude, you should just change your name to Pro Bono Pictures because... It is, you know, she, it was the same. It's like she was in the same like uh, quest uh, for storytelling. Um, so I still believe that. Um, I think that you have to though go in with open eyes and know that not everybody is here for the same reasons. Not everybody is here 
Um, and people do get caught in systems where they can't give you a yes or a no. And it's just going on and on and on. And they're using you un sometimes unintentionally. I was on the executive side. I watched it. All of that is true. Um, but I think what we're trying to say here at the podcast is the only thing you have control over is that lava, is that storyteller inside of you, is that muse and and doing that, right? That's that's the real work. The rest of it is the the stuff you have to deal with. Yeah, to be aware of. It's I I just am trying. I think this unpaid, unmade labor market, it's fine. If you're working on something for yourself, great. Let it be, you know, an example of your best work. Um, and do that. Choose yourself. I think this accommodating. A good note is a good note. I will all we will all take a good note, right? But if you find yourself in a conversation where that is not the case, right? You might want to invoke some archetypes <laughs> to help you. Um, you know, don't avoid conflict because it's uncomfortable. If you can do healthy conflict navigation, you know, I, I don't know. I want people to stick up for themselves a little bit more in a nice way, learn to healthy conflict navigation. Most of us, most writers are dissociatives and like live in our own fantasy world. And we like to just hunker down and not have conflict, but like learn to navigate uncomfortable conversations because he who's willing to have the crucial conversation has a better chance of winning. If you're just not going to navigate that um, and it hurts the work, it hurts everybody. And it's also really important too the this conversation with like diversity, inclusion, equity, right? Like, these are the conversations that need to be had to be had to really ensure that type of actual change and 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 stability that you know a lot of these studios are talking about wanting right. Um, but it 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 starts there, I think, in terms of the valuation of like what the artist brings, and then talking about the accessibility of that, right? Like how many people, how many doors are closed for people who can't work for free, you know. Um, to get to that that next stage, you know, and what's going to sustain you to the next level. Absolutely. Well said. All right. So what archetype card should I carry around with myself? How do I figure out which card is for me that makes me feel like the song, dancing around, feeling joy, invoking joy for myself? I need a card that I can be like, I'm going to put this in my pocket. It's my superhero card. <laughs> It's my badass well, card. I don't know if this answers your question, but I did pull a card before oh, okay. to see for, the, for the podcast to see. And I got the Destroyer. Oh my God, I love it. I'm and deeply in. So I don't know what it destroyer, means, but I recognize it. <laughs> you know, when light, swift and precise blows that redirect our life, when dark, self-destruction, negativity, unwillingness to rebuild. So like, you, I could picture you dancing to punk music, you know? Yeah. yeah. But think about Kali. I don't know if anybody knows the goddess, the goddess Kali. She's a great example mm -hmm. of a destroyer. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And it's one of, she says, it's the final of the three archetypes in the trio of existence. And it has necessary yet painful work to do in the world. And that's what we've been talking about, right? Is getting to the, the necessary harder stuff in order to make it good. Yeah. All right. The destroyer. I, I mean, <laughs> hardcore. <laughs> my heart fire burn it down or fire for food and sustenance substance right like this is my it's well and the destroyer isn't always outside somebody else it could be your own oh no um, i i recognize you know, that your own <laughs> but just i'm what? saying for the audience it's not like we're saying to you come into hollywood and 
burn it all down. <laughs> That's my job, everybody. Back off. <laughs> Although I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a sign that says, may the bridges I burn light the way. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I'm maybe not the best person to ask. No, I like that. I, but I think that's uh, such a, a way to sort of bring it back around, like, okay, these are the problems, then how do we confront that? How do we choose ourselves? How do we make choices rather than just going along with because that's the way it is, which is, again, what women have, and so many of us in our culture have been taught to do. Don't disrupt, don't bother, don't get people angry at you, be safe, and you can't make change. We're Norma Ray. We all have to be Norma Ray. Let's good just trouble. Norma Ray the shit, right? And, and there's also good trouble. Good there's trouble. benevolent yes. trouble. There is, you know, there is the joker, you know, there's the the class clown who says the exact right joke about the mean principle. And the, there's lots of different ways to be benevolently disruptive and be a benevolent disruptor in your own status quo. Where are you falling asleep? Where are you numbing out? Where are you checking out? And ask go on a journey of, you know, curiosity with yourself and see what you're scared of and bring it into the work. Use it. People need it. People need you to go there. But that's a beautiful place for us to say thank you so much. We, um, I mean, I, my brain is just moving and, and doing so many things right now. Um, we, we do, we do end asking the, the I guess the same three questions. So we're going to, let's do that. Um, so Jess, what brings you the most joy in your creative life? Possibility, just possibility, playing in the world of possibility in the world of curiosity and imagining something um, new. All right. We might already know the answer to this one, but what pisses you off in your creative life? You know, unfairness is really my, anytime there, there I see unfairness, in the world, or when I'm being unfair with myself, when I have been too hyper-focused and my body's breaking down or, um, you know, unfairness, but unfairness, I also use that as a big motivator. So I'd say my, the blessing is the curse. It pisses me off, but I use it. Oh, that's such a great, great observation for all of the answers we've had over the podcast of often those things that piss you off are, is the motivator. It's a great tool to write for sure. I mean, like, yeah, angst is a nice place to go in because at least you have something, you have a page to go to, right? So I love that. Um, and then Jess, finally, our last question is, if you could go back in time and have a coffee with your younger self, kind of right on the precipice of her creative career, uh, what would you tell that Jess? Oof, listen. <laughs> um, Gosh, I would say... You're not going to listen to me, but please consider that, you know, not every battle is a sword you should die on. Like try and mediate those battle instincts a little bit um, and try and be a little more flexible and a little more accommodating and a little more willing to dance because you might learn something. Um, yeah, it would definitely be a discussion about flexibility. Still learning. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you guys yes, so much. For, and all for all the service you're doing to help writers and help people. Thank you for this podcast. Thanks so much to Jess for joining us on today's show.
And if you haven't yet, uh, please consider joining our Patreon. Uh, we're doing some workshops and Q&As over there. And Meg and I have a lot of fun interacting with all of you over there. And we also have tons of amazing conversations over on the Facebook group. We'd love to see you there. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. <laughs>